Before we get started, I want to tell you about the sponsor for this week's episode. AB Jets is a great story and great company. I'm not exactly flying around on private jets during this stage of my life, but if I were, I'd be calling AB Jets. They're one of the safest private air companies in the world. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S. This podcast is also sponsored by My Story. Have you ever thought about what if you could have your own audio and video interview for someone you love to keep and share for generations to come? What better way to keep and remember the life and story of someone you love than your loved one's own interview in their own voice? This is the perfect way to make sure your loved one's story stays with their descendants for future generations to come. Go to mystorytold.org to learn more. Again, that's mystorytold.org to learn more. Now we're going to get back to the show. If you think about where we've come technologically, how fast some of it's happened, there are a lot of things that maybe sound crazy, maybe aren't so crazy, right? Maybe we will have flying cars. I don't know. I wouldn't rule it out. Who would have thought we would be doing today what we're doing 20 years ago? So I don't know. I think I think the uh, the idea of what's possible, and things that we're seeing, some of it does seem a little far-fetched, but probably will happen over some period of time. I hope I live long enough to see it. My guest today is Gary Wonderlich. Gary is an entrepreneur and investor. At the age of 26, Gary founded Wonderlich Securities, and he and his team turned Wonderlich into a national full-service and investment banking firm. 400-plus employees and two decades later, Wonderlich sold to B. Riley Financial for $67 million. In 2020, Gary co-founded Live Oak Merchant Partners. Since the founding, Live Oak has launched four SPACs, also known as blank check companies where they are investing in biotechnology, innovative semiconductors, mobility and motion technology, and environmental sustainability. Just wait. As you listen to this interview, you'll hear how Gary plans to roll out one to one and a half SPACs a year moving forward. I had a great time with Gary, where you'll hear the impact of having strong advisors when you're only 26 and naive, managing through chaos and why he's more comfortable that way. Investing in the future, his process, deal flow, and the impact of each of his investments and what they have to get right to succeed. The joy of pouring into other entrepreneurs when you know what they've been through and much more. Please enjoy this week's episode with Gary Wonderlich. One quick note before we get started with this week's episode. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, well, welcome. Glad you're here. And I hope you find this conversation well worth your time. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you may notice a less sharp audio quality from my side this week. 
for some strange reason, my laptop did not pick up my microphone. You'll still be able to hear me. It's just not to the level of quality that strive for with this podcast. The good news is if you have to hear one person less quality than the other, we're glad it's me and not Gary. So that being said, Merry Christmas, happy holidays to you and your families, and I hope you have a great week. Gary, great to see you. Thanks for coming on this afternoon. Hey, Sam. Thanks for having me. I was curious, you know, from the top, to start with partners at 26 and build a company with, that I think ended up around 461 employees and $10 million assets under management. Have you experienced any similar type of emotion or excitement at the start of these SPACs and these new partnerships that you're in and what you're building now since you've almost, you raised almost a billion dollars in capital and already deployed about half of it from what I can see? Yeah, we, um, it's been a really exciting time. Um, and actually, there are some real similarities in that you're right. I was 26 years old when I founded Wonderlick Securities. We actually bought a little business, Chrysler Tipton and Company, here back in '96. But you know, I shouldn't. I don't want to call it naivety, but there was some naivety, certainly at the time. But and I'll tell you, similarly in the SPAC space, you know, we knew a lot about SPACs. We knew how they were structured. We'd underwritten some. Uh, we'd never, we'd never operated or sponsored one. You know, prior to 2019. So I say the biggest similarity is we learned a heck of a lot. You know, kind of along the way. And also similarly, you know, some of the rules that have changed on us along the way. And I believe me, that happened a ton, you know, during the, my tenure at Wonderlick Securities. So lots of rule changes and regulatory changes and things of that nature. So there's definitely some similarities, but it's exciting. I mean, even, even when at Wonderlick, you know, when we would do underwritings and raise capital for companies for them to be able to grow and achieve, you know, the big dreams, you know, it's been a lot of fun to see that, that become a reality for the two, you know, DSPACs we've achieved for Steve Crossgree and, and and the Danimer management team and Gene Sheridan over at, at Navitas. Just there, it is definitely gratifying to get them the capital they need to grow and, you know, become a public company, which is something that they, they long dreamed of. And so there's a ton of excitement for me personally and our team around that. What do you think you've honed in to be able, you know, I know you have partners, at least what I thought I heard. So if I'm ever incorrect on anything, please let me know because I want to be accurate. But to roll out and to scale things the way that you have, what do you think you've just kind of got? I mean, this is not a prideful thing, it's just a curiosity standpoint. I mean, for you to be able to process a lot, for you to be able to just learn new things very quickly, but then also keep the main things kind of on track, is there anything that you feel like you've seen within yourself that gave you the opportunity to do that the first time and now to be doing it the second time? Because for example, if you look at each each of these facts, I mean, you and your partner, Rick, right? You are the only ones that are in operation all four times. And there's a hustle there, I guess, that there seems to be a pattern of hustle. And I'm just curious, is there anything there that you could speak to? So, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm fortunate in that, you know, I really enjoy being busy. I like to have more things to do than there's time to get it done. I probably am probably better in that environment than in a slower and very, very methodical environment and moving quickly, managing through chaos. I'm probably better at than sort of a, you know, the drawn out planned uh, environment is, you know, maybe one reason I didn't go to work with my dad at, at the bank, you know, banks, very methodical, very, you know, everybody's well thought out. There's loan committee meetings and, 
one thing I know I'm good at is uh, making decisions. Now, what I may not be good at is making the right decision, but, <laughs> you know, making decisions and acting. Um, and, you know, hopefully I'm right more than wrong. But but being on the move, you know, having more to do than there's time of day to get it done, you know, is you know, I'm comfortable, more comfortable and probably better in that type of environment uh, than not. Now, it's true, Rick and I are the only two that have been in all four of our SPACs that we've We've taken public into a beast back, but we, we, you know, we have a ton of help uh, around us. And, you know, in the, in the second two SPACs, we actually partnered with, uh, with a couple of other entities. I'm happy to, sh- to share with you basically to do just what you're maybe heading towards is you know, to leverage our time. There's only two of us. We actually have two more partners. So Live Oak Merchant Partners, there's four partners, you know, and an associate. And, um, you know, I would tell you, we couldn't have done all four SPACs on our own. We did partner with two different groups on the, on the second two. One's called the Hawksbill Group, which is former um, General Motors executives, including Fritz Henderson, who was CEO and CFO, and Tim Lee, who ran Global Operations, Bob Ferguson, who I think ran Cadillac, and a handful of other guys, really, you know, C-suite guys that know more about mobility than we'd ever know. We did it every day for the rest of our lives. And um, so that's been a tremendous help, just giving us some operating leverage uh, to be able to look at transactions. Um, you know, they're way up the learning curve by the time we get there. And then... We also partnered on our on our fourth SPAC, Live Oak Crestview Climate, uh, with Crestview Partners, which is a private equity firm in New York that Rick's had a very long relationship with. He's an operating partner there, one of their uh, reps, and they were investors in FBR, which was Rick's company that he ran. Um, we're on his board for many years. So a long relationship there. And what they bring to the table, they have a sustainability uh, practice, if you will, and um, they bring a lot of deal flow and and some other resources. They've got some people that help from an analytical standpoint, provide some back office support. So we've been really lucky. Um, first two, we were sort of out there on our own, you know, water out of a fire hydrant every day uh, and met these other two groups. And, and, and I'm pleased to report that it's, it's worked as well in re- reality as it did in paper. I mean, it's been really good. Um, it has been able to, for, for us to be able to leverage, you know, our capabilities having these really smart folks around us. Do you ever regret, or not regret, because people that live fast and make decisions, I don't think a lot about regrets, but you think about coming out of a you know, medium-sized city in the southeastern part of the United States, and now you know, you're doing business around the world, and you've been a part of force facts, like I said, raised close to a billion. And I mean, you said it, but you know, Fritz Henderson, former CEO of General Motors, I mean, you're you're, you're working with and raising money from and collaborating with some large names around the world. And you've already, with your partners, built and sold a company for more than $70 million. Do you ever think about any opportunity that would have been different growing up in a bigger city, Dallas, Texas, New York City, anything like that? Or does that even matter to you? You know, I do think about that. I think about it a lot. But in in fact, I think maybe I considered that part of the challenge in the early days. Um, I will tell you from a business perspective of operating a business, you know, we had an advantage being here just because the costs were much less. You know, if I ran, if I tried to build and run an investment bank uh, like Wonderlake Securities out of Dallas or D.C. or New York or, you know, any of the any major metropolitan area, you know, the cost to do that is, is probably 2x of what it is here in Memphis. Now, that's not to say we, you know, we paid a very good wage here in Memphis above, you know, very good wage. And we employed a lot of people. 
but just, you know, the cost of living here, uh, you know, and, and employment costs, you know, are a lot less. So it wasn't, that wasn't part of the plan. Like I was 26 years old, <laughs> um, but it turned out to be an advantage. So, but, but it's a really good question, Sam. I don't have, you know, I don't have any regrets because things turn, have turned out, knock on wood, have turned out pretty well. You know, for a long time, I kept thinking, you know, I should have gone to New York, you know, I should have gone to Dallas or, you know, one of the, one of the major metropolitan areas. But, but at the end of the day, I don't regret not doing it. And, you know, when we, when we built Wonderlick Securities, you know, we were, we were in all of those locations. So, um, you know, I've had the luxury, I guess, of spending a lot of time in a lot of those cities and met a lot of those people, but I've been able to enjoy a cost of living of being here in Memphis. Yeah. Uh, regret's the wrong word, but I've, I've thought about it a lot, but I don't think there's a regret. Yeah. Were there some early obstacles and hurdles that you had to get over early on by being from a smaller city like Memphis? Memphis wasn't a challenge, certainly in sort of the wealth management business. I mean, again, we started here with one location. Our first location outside of Memphis was in Houston, and that was with some guys who were formerly with Morgan Keegan that some of our guys knew well. And so, you know, the wealth management part of it really was an obstacle. I tell you, the capital market side of the business, our investment banking part of the business, was a much bigger challenge trying to do something out of Memphis than, uh, than in one of the other areas. In fact, we didn't, we didn't have many people here in Memphis. Those you know, we, when we were hiring capital markets personnel, they were typically, you know, Baltimore, Washington, D.C. area or New York. Uh, we had people on the West Coast to cover the West Coast. We had some people in Denver, some people in Texas. Uh, so not a lot of personnel available locally for those type businesses. And that was a challenge. But, um, you know, but the world has become even even it's a lot more mobile today, obviously, in virtual. But it was pretty mobile then. You, know, you often go into the client you know, on the road a lot. So um, I got to know the people at Delta Airlines pretty well, so Northwest <laughs> for a while, but Delta at the end of the day. Yeah. Going back to, it was almost psychological the way you framed it, but I don't know how many years after you started, but you wonder what took a $40 million, uh, investment from Altamont. Is that correct? We did, yeah. So the sequence of the way we capitalized the business, we, you know, we passed the hat uh, for a long time. Um, and my first partners, um, again, we bought Chrysler Tipton and Company, which was primarily um, selling municipal bonds to individual investors uh, here. A guy named Jack Chrysler, Delaney Tipton, and Charlie Kilpatrick were the owners. They were semi-retired or retiring and wanted to formally retire. And so um, I had uh, several partners. It was a very small acquisition at the time. It's big to me as a 26-year-old. So Jim Harwood, who you might who you might know and remember, who's, who's passed. Julian Phillips, unfortunately, has also passed. Uh, and Stilling McFadden were, were my three initial partners to buy Chrysler Tipton and Company. And then we continued to grow. You know, we grow from there. And as we needed capital, we would we would pass the hat. You know, and bring in other investors. And then as we as we recruited employees, they also had the opportunity to buy into the business. Uh, and then, and then I should say, you know, we had some really good advisors. My dad was on our advisory board. Phil Zanone was on our advisory board. Art Cecil is you know, one of my best friends to this day. You know, he's a good advisor, right? A tough grocer with low margins. Uh, he was on us pretty hard, but uh, but was a great advisor. But as we needed more capital, or we um, sort of outran sort of the friends and family, if you will, we did. I was. It's a really. It's kind of a long story, but. Was very randomly approached by a Norwegian family office run by a guy by the name of Alfred Istebo. I think that timing was around 2000, 
seven when we closed on it. But basically, he had run a business that was in a sort of wealth management area uh, in Norway and Sweden um, and wanted to do make an, uh, an investment in a larger market, but didn't want to do anything that would compete with them. And we obviously were not competing with anyone in Scandinavia. So he made a $20 million investment in, uh, in Wonderlick uh, around the 2007-8 time period, actually. And so we use that, that capital <clears throat> to really ramp up our growth and add additional locations and hire a lot more people. And then I, I don't know the date off the top of my head. You may have it, 2014, but the Altamont Capital, uh, we, we basically sort of outran uh, the family office business uh, capital as well. And, and uh, we hired my, my friend John Hemmer at Keith Brietton Woods to help us uh, search for, a, for a, uh, an institutional partner. And that's how we found Altamont Capital. Uh, I believe in around the 2014 timeframe. The reason why I asked that question, you said earlier on in the conversation, you're good in chaos and you're good in the unknown. And, you know, I've got a friend, he was approached and he, he did a, I mean, he's a younger guy, he's only a few years older than me. And he did, it was north of 300 million for a fund of, you know, by operating companies. And he just talked about freaking out, didn't want to do it, but a smart guy, driven guy. He, he did it and it's paid off and, you know, but it, there's some connections there. So I'm just curious. Now, obviously you're, we're talking about different numbers now, but you know, you come at 26, you have partners. It sounds like that were older than you ramping this thing up. And, and then you're taking serious amounts of money. And it's, if somebody's not wired to do that or wired to lose, to be okay with losing, they wouldn't do it. And I'm just curious, was there, was there a point in your life to where you were okay taking that shot, which is then carried into everything else that we're talking about today? It's a, it's a great Chris Stapleton song now. There's a quote in there that I really like. It says, nobody wins afraid of losing. And so, yeah, I don't think we were ever afraid of fail. Well, we were terrified of failure, but, but we were willing to take that risk. You know, I should also, the other advisor I meant to mention a minute ago, and I, I'm ashamed I skipped him, was Jim Keegan, one of the founders of Jim Keegan. And so we did surround ourselves with some um, more experienced people, right? And I, I recognized I was 26 years old, <laughs> but I guess plenty of confidence, uh, probably some naivety, but also knew I didn't know a lot. And <clears throat> I would tell you, you know, got a lot of guys around the table from all different types of businesses to try to help prevent me from, you know, hitting the potholes maybe they hit along the way. And I'd like to tell you, I listened to them in every instance. They would tell you that I'd all I did was argue with them a lot, probably, but they were all. <laughs> They were all very instrumental into to what, what little success we had. So anyway, I, I digress there. So I'm not sure I, I answered your question. It was about fear of failure. Um, and, you know, yes, you're afraid to fail, but we were certainly willing to we were willing to take chances. And look, I don't want to get into it because I don't want to I don't want to relive it. Uh, uh, but there were several close calls. I mean, you know, capital ran tight. Markets changed. Regulatory environment was tough. And, you know, we were a small, I won't say undercapitalized, but not well capitalized business. And uh, there were some pretty scary times over the 23 years that, that I ran that business. Yeah. Well, we can skip this. I don't intend to go into it. Um, I just have one surface level question about it. Just in those situations, would you just go to the people that you trusted and then just buckle down and then you got through it? Yeah, we did. We have, uh, I do laugh about it. There was, a particular instance, one of our one of my key people, I don't want to name his name, but don't know who it is. Uh, 
we're all around the table trying to figure out how to solve. We, we basically, the, the, the problem, this particular problem is we had a very large hedge fund fail uh, on a trade with us that ultimately ended up our responsibility. And it was a big number, uh, one we couldn't afford. And so we were trying to figure out how to shore up some temporary capital. We felt we'd get the capital over time, but we needed, you know, it's like over the weekend, we had to have that money in place on Monday morning. One of my key folks was sitting around the table and he was very relaxed and calm and, uh, and I said, what, you know, what's going on? You're not helping it. You know, we need some help here. And he says, look, he says, I've so far overachieved everything anybody expected of me. If we go out now, I'll still be in high regard with all my friends. I said, well, you're no help at all. But anyway, that was anecdotal. But we had a lot of moments like that. And, you know, part of it is, you know, just the refusal, the refusal to fail, maybe hardheaded. And, uh, but yeah, there were a number of moments that, that were like that. That one was probably one of the scariest, but, you know, but it is, it's, it's a business that particular, but, you know, you're trading every day, there's stuff going on every day, you're in constant motion. And so you're a little bit on edge, you know, on a daily basis, but, and almost expect something to happen. But yeah, I'd say when it did, you know, I had a good team around me and, you know, everybody had a mindset of just refusing to fail and we're lucky enough to uh, pull a couple of rabbits out of our hat along the way. Yeah. Is there anything that you saw from your dad growing up that gave you a sense of confidence to, to take it the way you reference that line from Chris Stapleton? Like, was that a sense of confidence? So dad, you know, he's one of my best friends, but we are very different from a business perspective. Um, he's so from a risk aversion standpoint, we're polar opposites, right? So another reason I probably shouldn't be in the commercial banking business, right? If you tell me you're going to pay me back, I'll loan you the money. Sure. I mean, that's how we do it. Um, I would tell you my interest in the business though, did come from in the evening. So he, and you know, he was a lawyer at high school Donaldson for many years. It's now Baker Donaldson uh, before he invested in and, and helped run financial federal. But in the evenings he'd come home and I, we would, we would sit in the den and watch TV and we watched then, you know, you didn't have all the cable channels. It was the nightly business report and um, it was on PBS. And that's really where my interest came. I'd watch the nightly business report every night with him just in, uh, on what was going on. They had some guy named Paul Sanga, uh, who some of your listeners may know if they're old enough, you know, who would quote unquote show you where the action was on Wall Street today. That was his big segment. And uh, I remember it you know, clear as day right now and watching that as a, as a teenager, you know, with dad. So I would say that would, that would be it. You know, it's clearly some traits from him, you know, the risk aversion being different, but, you know, I, I, I did see him, you know, building a business, watched him building a business and watched, you know, how he treated his employees and sort of how he went about his day. Certainly, um, you know, I hope I was able to emulate some of that because it, what, what he was able to build or has built at Financial Federal, the culture there is second to none. And a lot of that is just, you know, building your business with good people, appreciating good people and treating them the way that, you know, you would want you would want to be treated. And that for sure, you know, I could see that uh, in real time uh, being around that. Last question I got on this segment, but from a stress standpoint and dealing with a lot of deals, relationships, fluctuations, what have you learned maybe from others or through yourself to still try to be like a good human being and treat people the best way you can because stress can, can make a lot of us just go absolutely nuts and, and, you know, treat people in a way that you kind of regret. 
uh, later. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know. Stress didn't, you know, I think where I maybe where, where I would get upset with people is if they didn't, if I, if I, if they didn't appear to care or they didn't really want to try, you know, maybe as hard as, as I did. Um, so I didn't, I didn't ever find myself like taking stress out on others. And maybe part of that was I knew that the only way to get out of whatever stressful situation I was in, the others were going to have to help me do it. I mean, when you have 400 something employees and stuff going on every day, you know, you do, you do need to be able to rely on people around you and um, have confidence in them and empower them. And, um, you know, I don't know. I bet a lot of my former the guys that work with me at Wonder Lake, I don't think they really saw me as CEO, quite frankly. You know, I was just one of the six or seven guys in the room. And when stuff happened, we, we figured out how to tackle it. You know, and a lot of times I didn't feel like a CEO the way I was treated by some of these guys. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> but I didn't want that, right? I didn't want to be treated as I wanted to be, you know, I, I mean, these were people I had confidence in. They built the business with me. They've been there every day like I've been. And so, you know, I just happened to be there first. So I, I was CEO. Um, but there are a lot of other guys around the table who were helping me tackle problems, you know, that, that knew as much or more than I did, you know, about the particular situation. So, uh, yeah, I don't I don't the stress didn't didn't drive my behavior towards others. Uh, I don't think maybe others may have a different opinion. Maybe my dog at home. <laughs> yeah. Well, we won't know because I didn't ask it. Did that intensity ever wane over those 20 years? Like I, you're, what you're describing, it sounds like somewhat of a decentralized environment, a ton of energy, a ton of passion in building something, working with people that are very committed to the work. And it sounds like you didn't say this, but a first person and last person out environment. Yeah. So the culture sounded very locked in from that standpoint to start something at 26 and to put two decades into it. I was just curious, did you ever, did you ever go through any seasons of that 20 year period where you felt personally less driven in those ways? So look, there were plenty of days where both feet didn't hit the floor at the same time. Um, <laughs> they, they were few and far between, right? Most days I would hop out of bed and ready to go. And it, you know, it was a 24 seven business. Um, so, uh, I, and it, you know, it's actually, it's a great question, Tim, because I often, even today, you know, I actually feel like I'm as driven today as I was all along the way, maybe, maybe even at 26. And, and I actually, I actually worry about the question you asked. I worried about waking up one day, not having uh, that energy and enthusiasm, because I think if I didn't have it, we'd have, we'd have, I don't know, we'd have, we'd have died. A little, we wouldn't have made it. <laughs> uh, yeah. And that didn't mean it was relying on me, but I mean, that energy and enthusiasm and commitment and, and excitement about it, it's contagious. And so, you know, were there low points? Yeah, they didn't last long, fortunately, I guess is probably the best way to answer your question. But there were those times I was worried that, you know, if I did lose the energy or enthusiasm or excitement, you know, uh, and, and just getting up and going to work and getting stuff done. And so far I haven't, but I have worried that I would lose that at some point. And, uh, you know, maybe it's coming, but so far. So, so that good. curiosity goes back to childhood, the way you described it, and it's kept you in the game this long. I would say, yeah, probably. <laughs> That's awesome. Is there anything you can speak to about things you started to see? I know that what I read that before you were acquired, y'all were acquired, you were talking to your partner now, Rick, y'all were going to merge yep. y'all's two companies and then Riley came and acquired them and then you. But can you speak to, I don't know, those last five years or so or what was going on through your head or what you see in the market to where you, you know, you were looking to make that yeah. merger? 
a lot of what we did, as I mentioned before, we were never well capitalized. We certainly were never overcapitalized. So, you, you know, we were always could use more capital, always, 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 always. And um, Rick and I started talking about putting FBR and Wonderlic together. Uh, we'd known each other for a decade. We were we participated in a lot of their transactions, but their business was largely well, not largely, probably almost entirely capital markets. I'll investment bank. So the, and, and a lot of it was around capital origination, doing really large sort of 140 full rate private transactions. They were sole manager. And when they did a deal, the, the, the company did extremely well, made a lot of money. But it was very episodic. I mean, you know, I, I don't know how many they could do in a year, but when they did it, they made a lot of money. So there were, you know, lots of ups and downs sort of along the earnings line. And they were also a public company. And so it's a tough model from a public company perspective to have these highly episodic deals come and go because you just don't know when you're going to get a deal and when one's going to fall apart. And, and our business was a little was a little more boring, if you will. So the wealth management business was sort of slow and steady, slightly up and to the right, good cash flow. And so the idea behind putting the two firms together was it would mute the ups and downs for FBR. But it would also augment our ability to recruit additional people. We would we would be able to distribute the deals that they were working on. We would we could have combined back offices and then actually run that run those businesses out of Memphis because again we could do it a lot cheaper here uh, than we could in the D.C. area. So there were a lot of really good synergies that were that and not a lot of overlap. So I don't think it would have been a lot of job loss. It was just complementary businesses, uh, and they had more capital. So that was sort of the idea behind it. And then, uh, you know, you'd have to ask uh, Brian Riley, but I mean, they, you know, when they came in, they made an unsolicited offer for FBR and then sort of looked into what they were doing with us. And their business was also more of a capital markets business. And so industrial logic still made, it was still there, you know, adding a wealth management arm on top, on top, on to, or alongside it, you know, a capital markets business made a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, that's sort of how it all how it all came together. You know, that was just size and scale matters. It, it always and it continues to matter. And but I don't think there was any seismic shift in the industry itself that forced that. I think that was just more. You know, as we continued to grow and need more capital, you know, Rick was a was a friend, and they we you know we knew we'd be good partners with the complementary business. Um, you know, that would that would make a lot of sense. Now there were a ton of changes along the way. I mean. From 1996, when we started to, to now, I mean, you know, we used to trade stocks in, you know, eights and quarters and halves. Now you're in pennies. You know, you had Reg FD. You had a ton of regulation changes along the way. Um, I think we used to settle trades in five days. Now it's three. And I think next year it's going to one. You know, a lot of the profit centers of investment banks sort of dried up over time. Technology took just from an efficiency standpoint, took some of those out. Um, so the business definitely changed, you know, a lot along the way. But I would, but to answer your question specifically, nothing really in the last five years that sort of drove us to what we did, other than continuing to grow. You know, we found a good partner in FBR. Yeah, and I guess what you're describing, you know, you since the start, since day one, you and your partners were locked in on growing, and I'm so well, that seems like a big thing with you. And so knowing the value that y'all could offer and how you could stabilize income streams on a monthly basis to, to bigger groups that, you know, where their PLs fluctuate a little bit more, you felt like it was more access to capital to have a stronger runway for what you were doing. I mean, is that a plain and simple? 100%. Yep. And then they just came in and offered you a, a deal you couldn't refuse. And then 
just changed. Yeah. Well, specifically, the way the FBR deal, the B Riley deal happened, you know, they were they were public. FBR was public. B Riley was public. So they had a different set of protocols to follow, and you know, there's a shareholder vote there. So whether I'm not saying whether they wanted to do it or not. I think everybody wanted to do it. It made a ton of sense. You know, there, there was a shareholder vote to do that. And then, um, again, it, it, we wanted to do it as well because, you know, the, the, the industrial logic of it had, didn't change. You know, it was just an additional name, you know, name in the mix. Yeah. From an experiential standpoint up to that time, was there anything that you can think of, one or two things that were really hard lessons learned that ended up being very helpful and became things that you almost doubled down on first? on any new deal that like you're doing today? <laughs> I don't know, what did Ronald Reagan say? Trust, but verify. I've done a lot more verification now. And it's, uh, you know, it's a very litigious business too. So you know, there's, there's parts of it that I got a little jaded on. Um, in the regulatory environment, you know, I, I, I think I learned how to operate better in a regulatory environment uh, sort of along the way, but they just, they think differently and, you know, that part I don't miss. <laughs> the regulatory environment, I don't, I don't miss that part. And I, I don't want to say that, you know, there's an assumption of guilt, meaning you're guilty until proven innocent, but you do feel that way a lot, right? You're constantly being accused of things and the way they're even asked questions. So, you know, I wouldn't want to wake up every day and think that way. That part, that part I don't miss. And so what did I, what did I learn from that? Uh, what we're doing right now, we're not in a regulated business, right? We're an issue, <laughs> you know, um, now we're, we're involved with a regulated Industry. And there are lots of rules and regulations around what we're doing, but our day-to-day business, you know, is we're not answering to, to regulators, which is delightful. As long as you have the trust with who's involved and what you're doing, I guess you feel a lot less, less number of restrictions to really build out what you see. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, like we're a small group, you know, we're all per- perfectly aligned. We've, we've put our own capital up, um, you know, we're all driving towards the same goal. You know, but when you're in a large organization, as you know, again, large is a relative term. Right? It's locally, I guess it's large with 400 and some odd folks. And you've got thousands of clients and 10 billion of client assets. And you're also doing transactions. And, you know, you're not always dealing with the right people. <laughs> and it's impossible, you know, to, have to, to do that 100% of the time. So, you know, if you get a bad client looking for a reason to sue you, they'll, they'll find a way to do it. And extort money from you, you know, but yeah, I, I don't, so, you know, what did I learn? Trust to verify, I'm trying to be better about verifying more. Because uh, as I said before, you know, I'm, I do, I do like people in general. And like I said, if you, you know, if you said you want to borrow money and said you'd pay me back, I'd probably loan it to you. Right. So <laughs> probably not a very good banker. Um, <laughs> and hey everybody, we're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25-hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers 
and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S to travel on your own terms. This podcast is also sponsored by My Story. Have you ever thought about what if you could have your own audio and video interview for someone you love to keep and share for generations to come? What better way to keep and remember the life and story of someone you love than your loved one's own interview in their own voice? This is the perfect way to make sure your loved one's story stays with their descendants for future generations to come. Go to mystorytold.org to learn more. Again, that's mystorytold.org to learn more. Now we're going to get back to the show. I read a quote by Rick Hendricks. It said, it's exciting and it's fun to do it with somebody like Gary Wonderlake, with whom you've worked with for a long time and had a lot of professional, personal regard for. That makes what can be difficult a lot easier and certainly a lot more fun. And I also read a quote where you said, and I think this is accurate, but you said throughout this period of transition with what you were going to do, sometimes it changed by the month, sometimes it changed by the week. Can you speak to anything about, you know, going through that season of transition and then and then back up with Rick the way you have and the other partners you have? What's that like personally, especially at a, at a young age? No, great question. Um, so when I left in November of 2018, it was really hard, right? You know, I mean, I you know cried all the way home. Um, not not of sadness. Maybe, I don't know what it was, but you know, it was you know. And then I got up the next day, and the next day, and I didn't have anything to do. <laughs> and I had never done anything to do. And I've told you in the first part of this, um, you know, I, I thrive on having a lot to do. I mean, I really need to be a busy person. Idle hands for me are terrible. And um, there was a it was hard. I, I went around and um, I became friends with all the CEOs of what I'll call middle market firms, and uh, Jenny Montgomery to D. A. Davidson to Wedbush to Stevens uh, to R. W. Baird. Uh, Stiefel Nicholas was always good to us, um, and I got to know all of them when I was involved in the industry. And so you know, and I did have a non compete for a period of time, um, but I knew if, you know to find something that I wanted to do was going to take some time. Anyway, I went around and visited lots of them and, and it was a really difficult uh, few months, felt longer um, trying to figure out exactly what we wanted to do. I continued to talk to Rick and we had, we decided to form Live Oak Merchant Partners. And the idea behind it was to be, well, I call it a fundless sponsor. Um, we're supposed to call it an independent sponsor because when you say fundless, it means you don't have any money. <laughs> we don't, we have our own capital. But the idea behind it was be to act like a private equity firm, but work on it on a deal by deal basis. We put some of our capital in the investment and we raised money um, from our clients around it, um, but just do a deal at a time. And along the way, so anyway, that was that was what sort of started. And I had had a couple of conversations through my travels around the country to visit folks and friends in the industry, trying to figure out what what I wanted to do next. Or, um, I met with some with some folks at KBW and Stiefel who said, have you ever thought about doing a SPAC? And I said, well, no, I really haven't thought about sponsoring a SPAC. I said, I'm, I'm familiar with them. We underwrote them at Wonderlic and they underwrote them at FBR. Um, and so I was very familiar with the product uh, or the vehicle, but hadn't really thought about it. And he said, well, you need to meet these guys 
they're they're starting to put one together. I think you, you'd fit well with the group. And um, so again, I was out still trying to figure out what to do. Rick and I were continuing to have conversations and pretty much made up our mind we were going to form Live Oak Merchant Partners. But had a couple of meetings with this small group around the table and, and found myself doing more talking than listening, which surprised me because I thought I was late to the game. You know, as we continued to talk, I started to take a little more of a role in it and was still unsure. So I actually I called Rick and I said, Rick, I'm 50-50 going to do this um, with these guys. I'd love for you to meet him. So, but I'm 100% going to do it if you'll do it with me. <laughs> he didn't say yes. He, he, he actually is better at verifying than me. <laughs> so we got on a plane and we met a guy named John Amboyan, who's our chairman, He's been our chairman almost in everything we've done. He's a fantastic guy. He was the former CEO of, uh, of Naveen in, uh, in Chicago, you know, impeccable reputation, just a great guy. He's, he's been a good partner. Isn't it like $1.2 trillion under? Uh, yeah, it's a big number. And he was there. I think they sold it to CIA Craft. Maybe it went public, took it private. Um, but he was there when you know, they grew that business a lot. Had done a lot of the M&A work there to, to build Naveen to what it was. And sorry, sorry to interrupt. I just felt like that was an important number given what we're talking. Yeah, about. when you're talking about trillions, that's a big that's a big number. But anyway, but he was he was he was great to spend some time with, and uh, we left there sort of again, sort of verifying, and uh, uh, got Rick to agree to, to 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 do the SPAC, which became Live Oak Acquisition Corp. I guess it's called Live Oak Acquisition. Well, it's called Live Oak Acquisition Corp. We now have Live Oak Acquisition Corp. Two and a couple of others, but that was the first one that we did. Yeah, you got four, right? We have four. Yeah, Live Oak Acquisition Corp. merged with Danimer Scientific in December of last year, and then Live Oak Acquisition Corp. Two just recently merged with Navitas Semiconductor um, about a month ago now. Yeah, and then the other two. It was Live Oak Mobility Acquisition Corp. That's where we partnered with that Hawksville group I mentioned. Right. And again, focused on mobility. And I, I mean, we said very, very broadly defined. Um, thing we probably won't do is an actual vehicle. And really, this is along sort of the guidance of the Hawksville folks who came out of GM and know, you know, know the big manufacturers and what they're thinking uh, better than certainly better than we do. And their and their thesis is look, definitely electric vehicles are coming. We're all going to have them. You're all going to be driving them maybe sooner than you think. But we're not sure who the winner is going to be, right? Tesla's probably made it. Um, but all these others that you're hearing are sort of high-flying. Their theory was the traditional OEMs will probably be the leaders in it at some point. Um, you're just not seeing them out front yet because they have a lot of internal combustion cars to sell. And so our theory was sort of picks and shovels, if you will, in the gold rush, right? You know, anything and everything around it, but not the actual. And uh, anyway, they've been great partners in that regard. And then the fourth one is Lava Crestview Climate, which was uh, uh, Adam Klein is our, our partner there uh, from Crestview Partners, which, again, was a private equity firm out of, out of New York that has a, a sustainability practice, if you will. And they're more value oriented in their practice, um, but they've been they are in a lot of deal flow and they're seeing a lot of things that probably don't that don't fit with their private equity fund but had a high growth nature to it that they thought would make a lot of sense uh, maybe to put into a SPAC. And so uh, we partnered with them and that's also been working, working very well. Yeah. I've got four of those. We'll get into it, but I'm curious when you talk about that season and talking to Rick and then you went in on these SPACs, what was the biggest transition you had to make for that personally? You know, it wasn't, it wasn't because we'd underwritten a lot of, I mean, we'd done IPOs our entire careers 
you know, we had had, we've done mergers and acquisitions our entire careers. And so that's really all a SPAC is. You raise a pool of capital. It's a public pool of capital. Um, and then you merge with an operating business and the operating business survives as a public company. It's just an alternative way for a, for a private company to go public. There, you know, there's some nuances around it. There's some rules around it. So we definitely did some learning along the way. You know, we clearly are more knowledgeable on our fourth one than we were on our first one. Um, but the transition, you know, it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't hard. It was really an extension of what we've been doing before. We were just on the different side of the table. When you all found Danimer, to get to Danimer, how many other options did you have to go through to get there? Gosh, um, I don't know the exact number. It is filed actually publicly. We file an S4 to talk about how many NDAs you signed, how many people you talked to. I think the number was 60. I think in both instances, it was 60 to 80 companies that we'd had some sort of a meeting with. Um, I think in Live Oak, one, the first one, before we found Danimer, we'd had two other LOIs out. We, we um, One thing is we, we've, we've lost a lot of transactions because of, as I mentioned earlier, we want to do a little more verification than maybe some others. Uh, just meaning we're doing a lot more diligence. It's taking us longer. And so whenever there's the target is hired a banker, whenever they're running a, you know, a process on some sort of a tight timeline, I think we've lost every time. We fall out of the timeline. We're just not very good at the process part. And then, you know, the two other LOIs, we were just a lower, we were a low bidder. So a couple of LOIs, I don't know how many different, you know, 60 to 80 different uh companies we actually had a conversation with before finding the actual target. Yeah. That's something I thought was impressive. What's, what's the guy's name? Robert Gores, the SPAC man. He's done 13 and he's also got a, yeah, I don't know how you do that many. That's yeah. Well, so my point is, and you didn't, you didn't pay me to say any of this. I'm just reading between the lines. You cranked out four and that ain't shabby. And so, <laughs> and you're talking about the due diligence. And you're talking about, you know, essentially just trying to be conservative in this space or somewhat conservative on the capital that you're allocating. So I think that's pretty, that's a lot of hustle. I don't know how many miles you're flying or, you know, in the plane you're in, but uh, that's a lot of zigging around. We're back. Uh, we're back on Delta much more regularly um, and a little bit, you know, COVID was strange. You know, you are able to, there are some efficiencies on it, right? So. We were able to have that many meetings in a short period of time because the first meetings are on Zoom, right? Use the first meeting or maybe the second meeting. I mean, at some point, you got to be nose to nose. You got to do plant tours. You have to see the site. You got to meet people, you know, have dinner. All of that is still, I think, as important as it's ever been. So, so you know, when I say they're 60 to 80, some of them were just a Zoom call or two, and that was sort of, you know, we just didn't, we didn't get anywhere. But, like, I, maybe there's a common theme throughout this call. Um, this is a perfect business for me and that, you know, it, I'm as busy as I've ever been. You know, I'm seeing some of the most interesting things I've ever seen. I mean, from electric cars to helicopter taxis. So look, I'm an I'm an inch, and maybe I may not be an inch deep. Some would say, but I'm a half inch deep and 50 miles wide, and uh, boy, that suits me just great. I mean, maybe it, you're like eating at a good buffet. Yeah. So it's a. Uh, and it's really interesting. I mean, the things we're seeing and the things that are that are coming, it's a function of, and a lot of what we're seeing is just too early. I mean, so when things fall out of a process with us, it's not that they're bad ideas and it's not that they're bad management teams. I mean, these are some really, really 
you know, they've got great sponsors, they've got great management teams, they've got great ideas, they've got, they've got great technology, they've got intellectual property, they've got a lot of it, but if it, a lot of times when it falls out of the process with us, it's just a little bit too early, right? So the exciting thing about that is there's some really cool things coming, you know, at some point, but it was just a little bit too early in our, in our perspective for a, um, to be a public company. Yeah, I'm curious if we can double down there for a second. I mean, you and your partners have raised right under a billion dollars worth of capital, bioplastics, semiconductors, motion mobility, climate. You know, you found a target for two of the four. And so what's it like seeing the deals that you've seen and are seeing, but then also just elbow deep in this space and seeing, you know, like what's to come. Like, for example, with your bioplastic company, you know, there's a video of a, of a straw being completely biodegradable within 40 seconds in the bottom of an, o- of an ocean. Now, all that stuff is so far-fetched to some, but in your space, you're thinking about reality, you're thinking about due diligence, but then you're also seeing how the world's continuing to shift. And, you know, another example, less than 10% of the cars right now are electric. By 2040, you know, they're saying all electric. But, and then y'all built a new way to do semiconductors in a space where it's historically been pretty much mostly done completely a whole other way. It's just fascinating. What's that like for you? Well, <laughs> I mean, it's very humbling. I mean, you might think you know something. And, uh, well, you mean some of these people and some of the work that they've done um, and some of the things that are coming. And uh, it is it is really impressive. And it's certainly, it's very, very humbling. And like what we, what we think we bring to the table is our experience in the capital market space, right? I mean, I'll never know, uh, you know, a fraction of what the management team at Navitas knows about uh, gallium nitride and how it works on, you know, on the silicon wafer. It's faster, it's cheaper, uh, it's, it runs with, uh, runs cooler, you know, or, or, the, or the chemistry behind, uh, you know, the biodegradable plastic. Actually, Steve Crossbury, the CEO at Danner, was great. He basically described it this way. He says, well, it's really, it's made out of bug fat. And so he dumps it down. For me. <laughs> and then, the, but the bug fat is consumed when, the, uh, you know, by uh, other algae or whatever in the environment. So it actually goes back in the environment. So he can dumb it down for me, but, but, um, but it's humbling to see just how driven and how smart, you know, and then of course, just the products themselves. It's, 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 a, anyway, it's humbling more than anything. Exciting, but, but it's very, very humbling. Is there anything that you can speak to about living in a futuristic world, but then also having a sense of reality to know checks and balances, to know what you feel comfortable enough that has a legitimate shot to allocate at least a couple hundred millions of dollars to something. Yeah, you know, and the other thing we did back to the verification of the diligence process, um, you know, because of where I, we, we have limited knowledge of those actual businesses or the technology behind those businesses, um, and again, what we bring to the table is our capital markets experience, hopefully capital markets expertise to help them you know, build the right shareholder group, you know, get the right amount of capital, you know, things of that nature. We, we, we hire third parties actually to come in. So in Danimer, we hired. Uh, so we hired McKinsey to come in and do a big study on, you know, the, uh, the addressable market, uh, competitive landscape, sort of pricing around. PHA, which was our product, the PLA and traditional petrochemical plastics, and, and just sort of do a competitive study, if you will, to help, you know, sort of verify what we thought, right? But, you know, 
uh, and then we brought in a, a technical advisor to verify the science. Um, you know, Lee Enterprises came in and basically, you know, we went to the plant, we put on the hard hat and the glasses and we walked around and we held this plastic in our hands and I, but you know, but what do we know, right? So um, we did hire a third party technical advisor to come in and verify it was what they said it was. Same with, um, uh, with Navitas. You know, we, we, we did hire McKinsey again for some help around the semiconductor space, uh, particularly around GAN. But then also KPMG had a really, uh, has, a, uh, uh, has a semiconductor specialist sort of technical team. And they actually even brought in someone, uh, a specialist on GAN technology to come in and really verify what we were being told was, again, not that we doubted them. Again, I've told you that before, I'm, I'm a believer in people. But sort of verify the science, verify that it worked. So we had sort of an overlay of, you know, there is a market, you know, uh, a big market, and then also verify that, you know, the, the product does actually do what it says it's going to do. So those, you know, having a third party confirm what you thought or what you're being told certainly gives you the confidence to move forward. And probably one of the biggest things in both of those instances were the customer interviews we did. So we got to talk to some of the largest customers of Danimer, one of which was Pepsi. I think I'm allowed to say that. Um, and then Navitas, sort of the same way. All, all of the, I mean, there's not a, there's not a company in the country that makes telephone chargers, I think, that, that isn't a client in some way, shape or form of Navitas, I think. Uh, I'm on the board of Navitas, so I have to be careful uh, what, I, what I do say there. But we talk to people in all of the verticals that they're talking about going into as well, the solar, um, solar panel space, uh, data center space, um, electric vehicle space. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's a place everywhere for these GAN chips uh, in all of these verticals that are even you know, better and, than, than just the uh, phone charger. So I looked on the most recent quarter I could see for, I looked at it both for Navitas and Denver, but let's just take Navitas. And I could have been wrong, but I compounded it. I mean, it's doing about between 20 and 30 million a year right now. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. I'd have to go and, and look. And, and Danimer is probably not, their revenues this year as well, given their valuation, are probably not as imp that impressive. Um, I'll say, so the reason that the SPAC um, vehicle has become uh, so interesting and mainly interesting to high growth companies. As, as I mentioned before, it's just a public pool of capital that merged with an operating business. And it's an M&A transaction. And an M&A transaction, you're allowed to talk about the future. In a traditional IPO, um, you're, you're, you're technically only supposed to, you can talk about everything from today and then yesterday, everything backwards. So a couple of things have happened. You know, COVID for one. So if you have any sort of a COVID uh, effect of your business, positive or negative in the last two years, you've got to explain that away one way or another in your traditional IPO process. But in a SPAC environment, you know, you, you certainly would, you have to explain away the past if there is one, kind of what's going on and how you got to where you are today. But you can also talk about your plans for next year. Next year. And it's another thing that we've done and where other deals have fallen out is we have a high level of confidence in the revenue ramp for both Danimer and Navitas. In Danimer's instance, there are lots of very large take or pay contracts from you know, blue chip customers that go, out, that go out many years. And so that also gave us the confidence that the science worked because these blue chip customers would be putting their product in their system if they hadn't done their own verification. So that was another comfort factor uh, for Danimer. But the same with Navitas. Now that 
the, I think the lead time there may be a little shorter, but they were doing so much business with so many different customers. And then we talked to the customers who have, you know, certain product and design phase. Um, we just felt really, really good about that revenue ramp going forward. So to your point, you know, revenues today and revenues of 2021 really don't tell the story. It's sort of what's to come. Yeah. And so the CEO of Navitas, from an operations standpoint, to bridge that gap and to seize that opportunity in the market and for it to hit the way that you and your partners think it can, you know, what are some of the top things that he's going to have to navigate in this totally new way through getting, you know, nitrite chips? Yeah, I think in particular, Gene understands, you know, in, in, in the SPAC process, it's not, a, while it's an M&A transaction and, and obviously the target wants to get the highest valuation that they get, they also know, you know, they're going to be big shareholders going forward. And in both instances, no one took any capital off the table. Everybody rolled their equity into the business on a go-forward basis. So they're highly, highly incentivized to make sure that it's done at the right valuation and the stock trades well and, and goes up over time. You know, I think I think understand that. And so we have to be realistic in expectations and managing expectations, you know, and being able to talk to Wall Street. And, um, you know, I think that's that's a big part of it. So while we have a lot of confidence as a quote unquote investor um, in the business, you know, they got to feel the same way, you know, about these revenues, you know, go for revenues because they're going to have to stand behind them as well, um, which is which is vastly important. I mean, there is there is science behind the valuation. Right. You know, you you look at what you think, you know, you have a pipeline, you discount the pipeline, you talk about different customers, and, um, and then, you know, maybe did use some sort of a discount rate from those revenues looking you know, back to today. It's also another reason that just from a valuation perspective, um, that we've historically tried to do, you know, a pipe transaction alongside our capital and trust. Um, and pipe, pipe transaction for you, the OS listings, it's a private investment in a public equity and so I think, and I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head. We had two hundred fifty-three million dollars in trust for Navitas. Um, we did a hundred and seventy-three million dollar pipe alongside of it. And and what that does is that so those are largely institutional investors who basically have agreed with us that the valuation is right. Right, they're willing to invest that type of money at the valuation that we're that we're we're bringing at. And so it's a verification of your process. Correct. And again, that's also where we get really aligned. So we get really aligned with the Navitas management team. It's like, we all want you to get the best valuation we can get. We want this to trade well going forward. Let's validate this valuation by going out and getting additional capital alongside us from some really smart people who agree with us that think this is the right valuation to bring this company. Um, and we did the same thing, same thing in Danimer. So when you think about specifically Navitas and gallium nitride, is there anything that you can speak to from a high level? with the new opportunity of that semiconductor chip, not just because of the shortage now, but because of the, the speed of charge for future electric vehicles, and then also just how Intel and I forgot the, the other company from Taiwan, you know, that control those three companies. Yeah. Is there just like a, like a door that is just going to bust open with opportunity because of this new way of these semiconductor chips. You're probably thinking of TSMC, which is Taiwan Semiconductor. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm on the, since I'm on the board now, I want to be careful what I say. Um, so I can tell you in broad terms, you know, and I don't have the metrics. I should have should have that as a better board member. But, you know, it's two or three times faster than traditional chips, maybe faster than that. 
it takes up less space. Uh, so it's faster. There's less space. Uh, it runs cooler. So if you think about um, data center where you have a real you have a real loss of energy through a heat sink, is at a very high level. Um, it's pretty. It can be pretty revolutionary. And big uses and uh, electric vehicles, not so much in the high power stuff, but you'd be amazed at how many semiconductors go on a car. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. You know, the same with, um, you know, in the solar space, you know, space, space, speed, coolness, all that matters. And so it's, yeah, there's, there's some huge opportunities uh, for the product. How many SPACs, I mean, I don't even know if you want to answer this, but have you thought about how many SPACs you want to be a part of? <laughs> Right, so it's funny you ask me. I just um, I came back in town today. I just spent a couple of days or, and had dinner. Rick and I were sitting down to sort of pencil out where we were and what we were thinking. And, you know, I do think the SPAC uh, vehicle or, and our structure is here to stay. It's going to be an interesting couple of years. There's a whole lot of SPACs out there. Um, you know, there are definitely going to be some that are going to miss the window, probably have to return capital. Um, just because it's, it's hard to find targets. It's also hard to get deals. I will say this. It, it, it's been much, much more difficult than we thought it would be when we started. I mean, it, it, there's some highly technical aspects of it, just, you know, in any M&A deal, um, you know, that part has been a lot more difficult than I think we, uh, than we expected. We certainly underestimated that. So I think you're going to see some failures um, in the next year or two. You know, economics are being changed sort of around the edges. That said, um, you know, we think it's a great vehicle. The other, the other thing about the SPAC is, Again, it's an alternative way for a company to access capital markets, particularly, you know, high growth, small cap companies. And that, you know, just through the evolution of what's happened in the industry, think back to the 80s or 90s, um, and there was a group of four investment banks called the Four Horsemen, I guess, Heimberg and Quist, HQ, uh, Alex Brown, Montgomery, and Robertson Stevens by name. And for that matter, and for maybe people that are listening here, Morgan Keegan, right? Morgan Keegan was 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 fantastic at providing capital to small cap companies, primarily in the South. I think their tagline was capital for the South. And so there was there was a lot of different institutions that were out there providing capital to small cap companies. Well, they're all gone, right? They all got bought up by big bullet bracket firms who are doing much larger deals, dealing with much larger companies. And so SPAC has sort of filled that void, if you will. It's it's allowing these smaller cap, these smaller companies access to capital that they hadn't had in a long, long time. So that's one aspect of it I think that's popular. And the other is, you know, everybody was saying, well, no companies were going public. They're all staying private longer. And then when they do come public, retail investors don't have any access to it. Well, careful what you ask for, right? This is, <laughs> right? The SPAC is it. There are, there are companies now Instead of taking that final round from the from the PE firm, um, they want to liberate themselves maybe from some of the oversight and restriction there, and they're able to go public, you know, instead of taking one more round of private capital. So again, it's answered a lot of the complaints that you just had, but now there's people complaining about you know, lack of diligence or some of the things around the edges. You know, you can't. There, I guess there is no perfect world, but this answered a lot. Of this is access to capital for small companies. It's access to IPOs for the retail investor. So I don't know. I didn't answer your question. How many do I want to do? You know, I, I I don't want to. We certainly we're not going to issue five in one month, right? You know, I mean, it's we only have so much capacity. You know, we we are going to take our time. We are going to do extensive diligence, and uh, so there's only a limited number that we can actually do in a year. If we could do one a year or one and a half a year, um, 
maybe you know that 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 would be fantastic so long as the you know the industry is you know the, it doesn't get regulated away in some way shape or form or the game didn't get, get changed too much but um, we are having a lot of fun doing what we're doing we be a ton of great people seeing some some of the most interesting things i've ever seen um and it, you know it's pretty exciting from a competitive standpoint or difficulty standpoint i guess what you're saying is because of valuations and because of models and what people are throwing at it for you to fit it within the framework that you believe in it's been challenging from that standpoint because at the end of the day you're still having to be conservative in how you're valuing and then also how you're analyzing and having McKinsey or whoever else doing the due diligence to actually make sure that you feel comfortable because I know you've always talked about having skin in the game but are those the main reasons from a difficulty standpoint yeah especially like when it was when it was really frothy you know in the spring of this year um, it was really hard. It wasn't hard to raise capital from an IPO perspective. That was, quite frankly, that was the easiest time. But we lost a lot of deals. I say lost. I mean, we just we weren't even competitive um, because there were so many SPACs chasing so many targets. The targets were able to command um, valuations that we felt were, were were pretty unreasonable, and so we just we were losers. <laughs> And so anyway, some of that's come to roost. You've seen some not trade so well. You've seen some trade really well. Um, so, you know, there's a ton of opportunity in the SPAC space. There's some really good companies right now that are out there that maybe aren't trading or maybe as well, but are worth buying. I mean, I, you know, I'm certainly not going to name any names, but I mean, there's there's some really good opportunities sort of uh, if, you know, for people who want to do the work. I won't even call them busted SPACs. The SPACs hadn't traded that well. And maybe it was because they were public a little too early or maybe the valuation was a little too high. But they're still out there, you know, and they're they're trading at, you know, it's something maybe below the ten dollar issuance price. But you know, they do have a future and they'll probably do really, really well from here. And uh, you know, there's there's a lot of opportunity. Yeah. I know personally I've read where you talked about really liking to to pour into you I mean, I read both the good and the bad, and to have relationships with operators, you know, of these organizations, of these companies that uh you're putting money to, or maybe others that you still have a relationship with. I mean, are you satisfied at this point in your life and getting to pour back into and help people that are in the grind of it day in, day out? Absolutely. And I don't know if I may answer your question correctly. Look, part of one of the gratifying or things I enjoy the most, you know, are the diligence trips we take where I get to meet, you know, these entrepreneurs that have really built this business. And it, it's so it's so easy to relate with them because of what we what I've been through, <laughs> you know. There were days I weren't sure we'd make payroll, right? We had a big problem with that particular hedge fund. I mean, you know, and you know, when you're starting your own business, yeah, and certainly when we started, you know, we took turns loading the Coke machine and taking out the trash. I mean, so it's more than just a job for these folks. And um, you know, it's really fun to have conversations with them about, you know, how they got where they are, how they started and, and things like that. And um, I mean that's the part I probably enjoy more than anything. That and then the actual, you know, walk of the floor of their plant or their facility. Um, it's just fascinating. And so, yeah, where we can help, we certainly can help. And I, like, I, I surrounded myself with people who were sort of entrepreneurial in nature or run big, big businesses who knew a lot more than I knew. You know, and I would tell you that I listened to them. They would argue that maybe not all the time. Um, but where, you know, we, I'm certainly, I would never tell anybody what to do, but I can certainly tell them you know, experiences, both good and bad, that we had if, if the situation is right. Happy to do that. Well, some of the best advice you've been given either in those moments where you talked about those advisors or through another relationship that, that went really when maybe you see somebody else or in dire straits or maybe they're hustling and they're building something fast 
raising a bunch of money. What's some of the top best advice that you've received that you'd like to pass on? So I've gotten some really good advice that I didn't take, right? You know, take your time, be thorough. A lot of it was, it wasn't direct advice, maybe just watching others. And so the people around me, the mentors I had around me, how they treated people and, you know, you kind of learn by doing, but you also, you know, people watch what you do, right? Everybody needs to know that, right? If you have children or people, they're watching you. <laughs> they're going to, uh, and a lot of that will be taken with them. So I'm not sure it was really direct advice. Um, that I can think of. I, I will say that we're certainly proud of the things we've done, you know, and it's, you know, the, the, some of the most gratifying things were to be able to hire people and promote people within and give them opportunities. Some of them never thought they'd have, but oh, <laughs> probably, you know, I'm really proud of a lot of things we didn't do. Right. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things we almost did. I mean, really almost did a couple of times, like money had moved. It was in an escrow account. We were a day away and we didn't do it. It turned out to be one of the best decisions we ever made by, by not doing it. So for every you know decision that's public that we made and worked out, some not everything worked out. There are a ton that, uh, that we didn't do, and I'm glad we didn't. And that's probably true for everybody. Yeah. When you think of the last question I got, you know, we've talked about force facts today, Danimer, Natatas, we talked about climate and motion and mobility. Well, I mean, those are four very innovative spaces. And obviously you're, you've said you'd love to do one to one and a half SPACs a year. And I know some of these spaces can be doubled down, but is there anything else from a future standpoint that you're really excited about that, where we can wrap it up here? I, you know, I don't think specifically. Um, you know, I know I, you asked me two years ago, would I be involved with a semiconductor company or a, or a plastic resin manufacturer? You know, no way. Um, so probably what I'm excited about is, you know, what's next? I don't know what it'll be. I actually have an idea or two on, a, on, on, on the ones we're working on now, and it's pretty exciting stuff. So, yeah, I think, you know, I'm, I'm probably as far as what's next, I'm probably most excited about, you know, what I don't know, what it could be. You know, part of it, you know, it's helpful. You know, I didn't have a cell phone in college. We all have cell phones, now, right? And, uh, you know, in fact, I didn't have cable TV as a kid. You know, I remember when cable happened, right? And now you've got streaming and now everybody's got a cell phone. So, you know, you start, if you think about where we've come technologically and how fast some of it's happened, the adoption of it's happened, there are a lot of things that maybe sound crazy, maybe aren't so crazy, right? Maybe we will have flying cars. I don't know. I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, look, look at, you know, who would have thought, we would be doing today what we're doing 20 years ago. So I don't know. I think, I think the, uh, the idea of what's possible and things that we're seeing, some of it does seem a little far fetched, but probably will happen over some period of time. Hope I live long enough to see it. Yeah. It'll be really fun to see how things continue to unfold, but it's, it's really neat to unpack. We didn't spend a lot of time at the beginning, but you know, but midlife. Yeah. Rolling in a completely new space on futuristic businesses that are solving a lot of problems and offering a lot of value to the world. So appreciate you being honest and open about some of these things in a deeper way, but then also just sharing the things that you see in your processes. It'll be fun to see how all these things unfold. Happy to do it. I've, I've enjoyed it as well. I'm, I'm honored you think it's interesting. Hope others will also. And, uh, We'd love to do it again. Let's let's do it in a year and see what see what's happened. We got a new spec man. <laughs> All right. <laughs> hey everybody! Since you've made it this far in the show, I wanted to share with you something that you may love. 
A few months ago, I was asked to interview a close friend's grandmother who's in her 90s. She lives outside of the United States, and this is a way to get to the heart of her and capture her life in a way that could stay with the family for generations to come. This interview was an absolute blast, and it brought tremendous joy and value to this family. Since then, I started doing this for others. If you have someone you love or know of someone whose story and life you'd love to capture in an interview, go to mystorytold.org to learn more. My team and I would love to discuss this with you further. Finally, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show and you can follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven By Podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.